Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. The scripture is where the infallibility is, and we just try to not get in the way of it, right? I always love what a dear pastor friend of mine said is, we're just servers. Gather away and just serve it. So, so today we're going to be looking at Psalm 42. Let me read um, Psalm 42 and 43, and I'll explain to you why I'm reading both of those um, together. It says, For the choir director, a masculine of the sons of Korah, as the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night. While they say to me all day long, where is your God? These things I remember and I pour out my soul within me. For I used to go along with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God. With a voice of joy and thanksgiving, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him for the help of, my, of his presence. O oh my God, my soul is in de- despair within me. Therefore I remember you from the land of the Jordan and the peaks of Hermon, from Mount Mazar. Deep calls to deep at the sound of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have rolled over me. The Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime and his song will be with me in the night. A prayer to the God of my life. I will say to, my, to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me and why... Do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As shattering of my bones, my adversaries revile me, while they say to me all day long, Where is your God? Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. Starting in chapter 43. Vindicate me, O God, and plead my case against an ungodly nation. O deliver me from the deceitful and unjust man, for you are the God of my strength. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? O send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling places. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and upon the lyre I shall praise you, O God, my God. Why are you in despair, O my soul, and why are you disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can look at um, specifically Psalm 42 today. Um, 
We thank you for the faithfulness of the men that lead this church and we think about Dan and the ones that are with him and we pray that you would make their time special there and that they will um, reap great benefits from their time there. We thank you for your mercies in Christ's name. Amen. So specifically today we're going to look at Psalm 42. The Psalms are broken down into five different divisions or, or what they call books. So there's five books within the book of Psalm. Um, the divisions start on book one, it's one through 41. Book two is 42 to 72. Book three is 73 to 89. Book four is 90 to 106. And book five is 107 to 150. So this Psalm starts the second book of the book of Psalms. No, that can sound really confusing, can't it? Um, psalm 42 and 43 could, could be one psalm, and in some ancient texts, they are put together as one psalm. Um, it, I think in the Talmud, the Jewish Talmud, they um, have 147 psalms, I think, so, which indicates that some of the psalms they've actually combined together. Um, the themes of Psalm 42 and 43 seem to go together too. If you look at verse 5 of Psalm 43, you'll see it's almost word for word for, um, word for, word for Psalm 42, 5, and 11. But for our study this morning, we're just going to look at Psalm 42. So the first thing we read is the title. The title says, For the choir director a maskal of the sons of Korah. Maskal means written for instruction. It is for the sons of Korah, and in turn, it's for all of us, all believers. In Numbers 16, we find the story of Korah and his sons. Korah was a Levite. He was a cousin of Moses and Aaron, who joined in the rebellion against Moses. And most of you remember that story. Their rebellion resulted in the wrath of God being poured out upon these rebellious men through an earthquake quake and blazing fire, and they were swallowed up by the earth. Um, tremendous judgment by God immediately there. But the sons of Korah were spared. I think sometimes we don't catch that part. The sons of Korah were spared by God's mercy upon them, the descendants of the Korahites were appointed guardians of the sacred tent and eventually the permanent temple, and they were leaders of worship in the temple. There's about 10 psalms that are written for the sons of Korah, and Korah, their father, was an apostate in God's mercy. His sons were followers of him. So we see God's mercy there to them. So when we look at this psalm, we ask the question of who wrote this psalm. Some say it was written by one of the sons of Korah, but our title actually suggests it was written for them and not by them. And plus it was written by one man. There is even a view that it was written by the wicked king Jehoiakim. But honestly, we have to reject that. That's very far-fetched. There's a few liberal scholars that would hold to that. And then some say it was written by King Hezekiah, who was a godly king. Two significant events in, um, took place in his life that would fit this psalm. 
The first was the illness that threatened his life in which God directly intervened and, re and he recovered. And then the second was the invasion by the Assyrians, which could loosely be connected to the situation surrounding the writing of this psalm. Some say, and the majority that I've studied say that it was written by David when he had fled in fear from his son Absalom. It fits the events in the David's flight from Jerusalem very well, almost perfectly. Charles Spurgeon said, although David is not mentioned as the author, the psalm must be the offspring of his pen. It's so Davidic. It smells of the son of Jesse. It bears the marks of his style and experience in every letter. Well, I wouldn't be as dogmatic as Spurgeon is. I'd leave room for different views on that. Um, I would still lean towards the fact that David wrote this psalm. Um, I'd be like 80% sure of that. <laughs> I just leave that little room just in case I'm wrong. Um, but nevertheless, whoever wrote it, there's lessons for us to learn here. So let's start, um, just to give you a preface, I'm going to be jumping. This is a very hard psalm because it says the same thing at one verse, and then it'll go a few verses and say the same thing again. So what we're going to do is we're going to just take chunks of different verses, but we're going to cover them all. It's just that we're going to be flipping back and forth because of that reason. I was thinking this morning, it's almost like a manic depressive person writing this. Um, but we all can be that way for sure. Um, so let's start at verse 1 and 2. It says, as a deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? So I call this his spiritual, David's spiritual barrenness. The psalmist is crying out deep from his soul to experience the fellowship with the Lord and others he has experienced, he has had that experience with in the past. He was cut off from the temple, which is where he would go to meet with the Lord and worship with other believers. The picture we're given here is of a deer who possibly has been chased and has no time to stop. And if you ever think about, if you ever watch those um, Discovery Nature channels and you see the lions chasing the animal, we can get that vivid picture in our mind. He was panning for the water that can quench its thirst. The only thing on the deer's mind is to find that water. The land is barren, the brooks are dried up, and it seems there is no relief from the thirst in sight. The deer has no thoughts of food, but only the water that can take away this great thirst. The psalmist is comparing the drought in his soul to this physical drought that does not offer any relief to the body. The picture is so vivid here of this great thirst for this, of the soul. Have you ever had or are you in a time of great thirst in your soul that nothing seems to satisfy? Notice the, that David says that God is his living God. Even in his great despair, he knows that God is omnipresent everywhere at all times. God's omnipresence applies to every person alive. 
He sees the believer and the unbeliever. But there's a special relationship that unbelievers do not take part in with the Lord. He lives within us. When we feel distant from him, he has not moved, but rather we have moved. We have taken those affections away from him. He ultimately knew it was this living God who is the source of life for his soul. Assuming David wrote this psalm after he ran out, ran out of Jerusalem by his son Absalom after he um, Jerusalem or um, Absalom took over his throne, he longs to be in the sanctuary again to worship this living God, the God who is his very life. It's interesting to see that David's past may may have been a point of discouragement to him too. He knew that rebellion of Absalom was caused partially by his own sin. There are times when Satan tries to use our past against us to make us question if God is with us. Many of us try to fill our lives with things that really don't quench the thirst that we have for God. We fill it with mindless activities that will never bring spiritual wholeness to our souls. Let's look at verse 3 and 4 and 6 and 7. My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all day long, Where is your God? These things I remember, and I pour out my soul within me. For I used to go along with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God, with the voice of joy and thanksgiving, a multitude-keeping festival. And then jump to 6 and 7, it says, Oh my God, my soul is in despair within me. Therefore I remember you from the land of the Jordan and the peaks of Hermon from Mount Mazar. Deep calls to deep at the sound of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have rolled over me. So here we, first we looked at his spiritual barrenness and now we see that he feels a spiritual abandonment. He's looking at things from a horizontal level and feels abandoned by God. (coughs) His tears represent the deepest part of his soul and how his soul is longing for sweet fellowship with the Lord. Notice he is taking, notice he's not seeking physical comfort, but rather spiritual comfort for his soul. Nothing's mentioned in here of his physical discomforts. It's all about his longing for the Lord. Those those around him are ridiculing him and telling him that it is clear God has abandoned him. He remembers the time of rejoicing, being with fellow worshipers of the Lord, and even leading the procession in song to the house of the Lord. He is longing for that joy and thankful heart he had when he was in the presence of the Lord and with other believers. The psalmist's soul is not only longing to have that close relationship with God, but also to be in his temple worshiping with other believers. We can't separate the two. They go hand in hand. Those that are in right fellowship with God will want to be with other believers for corporate worship. There's a great um, commentator named H.C. Leupold. I don't know if any of you have ever heard of him. But he says, 
This is what he says about fellowship. Love for the sanctuary without the love of the God of the sanctuary is meaningless. Love for God, which does not result in love for his house, is unnatural. <clears throat> I could go on and on about that. I mean, we should have a tremendous love for each other and uh, care for each other. But we see the psalmist is driven away from Jerusalem where the temple was and where God met with his people. He says, I remember you from the land of the Jordan and the <coughs> peaks of Hermon from Mount Mazar. Mount Hermon to Jerusalem is about 120 miles or about a two-hour drive for some people, a four-hour drive for Jerry because he drives slow, um, and for me, about an hour and 15-minute drive. Um, but it, it would have taken several days for him on foot to get back to Jerusalem. So this is not, oh, I'm just a few hours away from it. He is away from all of his comforts. He's away from his temple. He's away from other believers. <clears throat> He's been driven out of Jerusalem in disgrace as his son has usurped his throne. He is far from the everyday comforts he has known, yet he is more concerned about being away from that temple and the extra special communion he had with God during those corporate worship times. And there is something very unique and special when the body of Christ comes together for worship. And this morning, I'm going... I'm not going on my notes now. This morning I was listening to Shane and Shane hymn albums. And I was thinking back about during the COVID time and how much comfort I got from listening to those psalms in, in um, music. And how... We do have those special times of communion, and when we get together here and we sing corporately, there's a joy and a, a special um, dynamic thing that the Holy Spirit does in that, in our souls, as it encourages us in the Lord. <clears throat> then we read that the psalmist feels like he is being drowned in the waves as they bash against and over him without any relief. He is far from the physical place of worship and is overcome in his depression, feeling no relief from the constant barrage. If you've ever, maybe some of you have been um, under a torrent waterfall that's coming down over your head, and <clears throat> when you're in that situation, you'll find it's very hard to breathe that that water is coming in such a volume and so, and so fast that it's hard for you to catch your breath. And as we look at this, I think this is what David is feeling. He's feeling that torrent that will just continue to bring his soul deeper and deeper into depression. He, again, he sees no relief. Oh, how can we relate to that? We can, can't we? We can relate to it because when we are in our trials and in our barren times of life, that's how it feels. There are times of spiritual depression that we have all experienced. There are times when God feels distant and uncaring about our situation. Feelings can overwhelm us and diminish facts that we know about God. We are promised trials, and we need to have the right perspective about our trials. 
So let us, let's look at some, um, and this is not going to be exhaustive for sure, but let's look at some reasons why we may become spiritually depressed. I can't cover them all, but here's maybe some of the more major ones. The first one would be spiritual depression because of our sin. We can go through times when we are struggling with sin that seems to overwhelm us and we will never be rid of that sin. We cannot have the closeness to our Lord during times of disobedience. The relationship is never severed for a believer. Make that clear. That relationship is never severed for a believer, but our sin is like a microfracture to our soul. I had microfractures in my bones. I didn't even know there was such a thing, but I was having major pain. And when they went in to do my knee surgery, they had to literally cement my... He said, just... He goes, I'm not going to get technical with you. Just think of, of cementing your bones back together. But I, I had um, tremendous pain when I would walk. And a lot of times I have to sit in church because my knees are hurting so bad um, still because I'm bone on bone, but that's another story. But I think that's a good example that, of how it is with our souls. We have microfractures in our soul when we're in unrepentant sin. And just like a physical microfracture, our spiritual microfractures need to be healed in order for our spiritual body to function correctly. So the first one is spiritual depression because of our sin. The second is spiritual depression because of physical illness. When we are physically ill or not getting the required rest, exercise, or nourishment, we need, um, we need, we can become spiritually depressed too. I'm thinking of ones that I know that are in chronic illness. With no earthly relief in sight. Some of you know why I'm crying. They can only stay in bed and hope the pain will subside enough to be able to get up and function a little. This can bring spiritual depression and weariness not only to the body but to the soul. I have a daughter in that situation. Spiritual depression, be, um, the third one is spiritual depression because of the attacks of others against us. And in our, um, in our environment, those attacks will continue to get worse and worse for us. There are times when those around us can cause us to not think rightly about our circumstances and our relationship with the Lord. These attacks are not only always from our enemies. They can be brought on from each of us, even believers, fellow believers. We can be a discouragement to one another by not being a person that builds people up. And that doesn't mean if somebody comes to you and confronts you about a sin or maybe a theological issue that you need to understand a little bit more. Um, that's, a, that's a different thing. But when somebody's gossiping about you, maybe slandering you, lying to you, um, that can be an attack from within, within our own family. We may be taking personal attacks by enemies that want to see our demise. 
that can cause us to question God's character and his love for us, and that he has our best interest in his hands. So let's look at verses 9 and 10. It says, I will say to, uh, sorry, I will say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As a shattering of my bones, my adversaries revile me while they say to me all day long, where is your God? So this is our third point, spiritual depression because of the attack of others. And here, David is getting attacked from those from without. So we've looked at um, we've looked at spiritual depression because of our sin, because of physical illness, because of ta- attacks from others. And now number four is spiritual depression because of other sins. And sometimes I don't think we always think about that, but we never sin in a vacuum. Even if you sin in private, it is affecting other people. Our sin and the sin of others can bring great trials upon ourselves and suffering through that. We can question what God is doing, taking us through a time like this, especially when it's not, when we are not the one that sinned, but just the recipient of the consequences of someone's sin. That can bring us spiritual depression. Number five, spiritual depression because of our past sin. Again, we're taking the position that David wrote this psalm, and therefore we're going to assume that this time was when he ran out of Jerusalem by his son Absalom. It's interesting to see that David's past may have been a point of discouragement too. He knew this rebellion of Absalom was caused partially by his own sin. There are times when Satan tries to use our past against us to make us question if God is with us. I I can't emphasize that enough because Satan will bring up those accusations against us and um, we start dwelling on our past sin and we can become discouraged and question what God's even doing and even question if we're really saved even. The sixth one is spiritual depression because of our passive approach to God. Some of us can be spiritually depressed because we are not being diligent in drinking from the living water of God's word and in prayer and meditation of his word. My dear sister over here just encouraged me. She posted on Facebook that she's in the word and um, she's in it every day. And she's such an encouragement to me to see her pursuing Christ like that. Sometimes we allow the world um, to dampen our proactive, um, our proactive running after him. So let's look at verses 5 and 11. He says, why are you in despair, O my soul, and why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him for the help of his presence. And then verse 11 says, why are you in despair, O my soul, and why have you become disturbed within me? 
Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. You know, there's a lot of people that think that you should never question where you're at with God. Um, a lot of that comes out of uh, decisionism um, theology, of if you've made a decision for God, which is not even, you can't show me that in the Bible because that there is no such thing as decisionism. But um, they, they say that because they said a prayer, got baptized, or there's even a school of thought that even if they had ever made a mental assent about the fact that Jesus is God, that they're saved and they're fine. And that it doesn't matter what happens after that. Well... My Bible tells me to examine myself to see if I'm in the faith. You can become too introspective in that. But it's good for us to ask ourselves, why am I in despair? And maybe go through that list of things that lead to spiritual depression and examine and see, do I have something in there that needs to get taken care of? It's very important that we take inventory of our lives on a regular basis. See, the, um, as we learned from Breck a while back, it is a battle. It is a battle, and it's a fight for joy. But we do need to take inventory of our lives. Is it because of our sin? Because of our physical situation? Because we are listening to those attack us and our Lord or because of our lack of pursuing Christ. In verse 5 and 11, the psalmist continues to speak truth into his heart. Though he is going through the drought in his soul, he reminds himself of the hope he has in God. That's what's incredible in this psalm. It's like we're dealing with a double-minded guy. It's on one side, it's like, where are you, God? And oh, Wait, I'm putting my hope in you because I know you're there. But we do the same thing, don't we? We absolutely do. So as, as we're looking at this, he's going through that drought in his soul and he reminds himself of the hope that he has in God. Not a hope like we use at times. Well, I hope that the Kansas City Chiefs get beat today because I'm a Bronco fan and they're in our division, so we don't want them to win. <laughs> That's just, that's not a hope that we're talking about here. Or, I hope I get that job. Or, I hope that girl will marry me. But rather, it's a sure, steadfast assurance in God. It's a hope that the world cannot understand at all. It's knowing that God will rescue us from our spiritual depression and once again set us up into that temple to worship him with a clear conscience. And then we read in verse 8, it says, The Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime and his psalm will be with me in the night. A prayer to the God of my life. Here again, it goes with the, it goes with the same theme of 5.11 and now we're reading... Um, verse 8 here, 
5 and 11, he's reminding himself of that hope he has in God. And in verse 8, he reminds himself that God is a God of love towards him. That God is not only there in the daytime, but he's in the nighttime too. He is always with us. His confidence in God to renew his soul. <clears throat> Sorry. Is clear because he says the Lord will and his psalm will. And he knows that God is the source of his life, both physically and spiritually. He doesn't say, well, I'm really thinking God may do this. It's not a maybe. It's he will do this. So as we're looking at this, and maybe some of you are going through a time of spiritual depression, and if you are, um, our small group just got done going through Spiritual Depression by Martin Lloyd-Jones. It's a great book to get a hold of. Um, if you'd like a, a resource on that, and if, even if you don't, buy the book anyway. Um, I get no money from it, so I'm just making, <laughs> making that uh, clarification there. You've, the money goes to the family, not to our trust, family trust that we do. You guys don't even know what I'm talking about. Never mind. Um, I'm, I'm on the Martin Lloyd-Jones board, so I just didn't want it to seem like I'm being self-serving here. That book is very good to have as a resource. So maybe you're not struggling with... Um, it's, I, I think we should have called it Spiritual Discipleship because it's a discipleship book. But it may be a great resource for you to have in your back pocket for somebody that you need to counsel through sometimes of spiritual depression or even just uh, uh, remind you of truths too. But that's a great book. But let's look at some remedies to spiritual depression. The first one is, and you guys have heard this over and over, the first, and you need to hear it over and over and over, and that is, number one is, we need to preach the gospel to ourselves. And number two is that we need to be in fellowship with other believers. So number one, what is the remedy to spiritual depression? It's the gospel. It's going back to his word, understanding that we are sinners poor paupers that are dependent upon him for not only our physical life, but our spiritual life as well. Notice the psalmist preaches to himself, as we said in verse 5, 8, and 11, he tells himself to hope in God and that there will be a time, hopefully soon, where he will once again break forth in praise to the Lord. So what do we need to be preaching to ourselves? Not just during the time of spiritual depression, but at all times. And I'm going to put some things under a heading that I'm going to just say is remembering his mercies. He has withheld that which is justly due to us, and that is eternal damnation. He does not pour his wrath out upon us as he did Korah in the rebellion. But rather he bestows upon us the mercies they extended to the sons of Korah. His mercies are filled with love, protection, and preserving of our souls. So what are those mercies? Number one is, 
He chose to set his love upon us before the foundation of the world to bring us to himself. See, we're undeserving of his love. We have nothing good in us to, that, to choose, for him to choose us, but rather he chose us for his good pleasure. And some people struggle with that, but that's what the Bible teaches. I think Christ, true Christianity is the most humbling religion in the world. I know it is. Because it divorces you of yourself. It shows you that you are spiritually bankrupt with nothing to bring to God. And that you have to come with open hands and receive what he has done for you. He chose you. And it's his secret reason why he did that. He doesn't tell us. It wasn't because of something unique in me or you or because I was better than someone else. <clears throat> because that's a lie. That's just the opposite. We are each as bad as anyone we want to compare ourselves with. Yes, you are a little Hitler. Yes, you are a Jeffrey Dahmer. It's just in God's common grace, he did not allow you to go to the depths of what your depravity really is. It was his good pleasure of why he chose us. And here's what blows me away. I am overwhelmed with the fact that God the Father loves us with the same love that he has for his son. That alone should take us out of our spiritual depression to understand that truth that he has a love for you as he has for his son. That's incredible. Ephesians 1, 4 through 6 says, Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved, in his son. So our first... Uh, our first uh, thing we need to remember about his mercies is that he showed, chose us and set his love upon us. And the second one is that he secured our salvation through the active and passive obedience of his son. That which we could not do on our own, he did by coming down and becoming our substitute. And we're really good about talking about him dying on the cross. That's usually all the language you hear, and that is him being the propitiation for our sins. But he not only came to die for sinners to take away the guilt and punishment of our sin, but he also came to live that perfect life, fulfilling the law perfectly that is now placed upon our account as if we lived that law perfectly. So when we get to heaven and we... God says to us, and this is hypothetical, why should I let you into my kingdom? Well, you shouldn't let me into your kingdom based on me. You should let me into your kingdom based on what you did for me. 
because you gave me your righteousness. And I've, you've heard me say it before, that beautiful picture of Adam and Eve receiving the garments that was those garments after God slaughtered that animal himself and made the first sacrifice for their sins that took away their sin, expi expiation. But then he takes those skins and he wraps them in those skins, which is a picture of us being clothed with the righteousness of Christ. <clears throat> so number three is he has adopted us as his own children. Another thought that just blows you away, doesn't it? He not only saves us from our sins and gives us his righteousness, but also he has adopted us as his own children. He did not just make us his servants. You know, what story do we think of in that is the story of the prodigal, right? He comes back, after he comes to his senses, he comes back to his dad. It says, basically, I'm not worthy to be called your son. If you'll just make me one of your slaves, I would be content with that. And what does his father do? He restores him to his adopt and to his son to to be his son again he restores him see god didn't make us to be just slaves in his kingdom but rather he's accorded to us all the benefits of being his children to being his child as his children we have not only the right, but the affectionate wooing of our Lord to be in constant communion with him through prayer and his word. Prayer is the pouring out of our soul to him, and his word is him answering us back. So we've looked at, he chose us, he set his love upon us, he secured our salvation through active and passive obedience of Christ, and he has adopted us as his children. And number four is, he has secured our future. He not only chose us, secured our salvation through Christ, and adopted us as his own children, he also will bring us to completion in Christ to the end. That should give us a great confidence. Those that are his will not abandon their faith regardless how tough things get. There is no such thing as backsliding in the Bible that's taught in this modern Christianity. If you're a true believer, you may go through a season of really, really tough, sinful time. And David went through that. So we know that can happen to a believer. But you will never abandon your faith because it's something that you have not done. It's him who keeps you saved, and he will keep you saved till the end. And there are times when that's all we can hang our hat on. Sometimes we look at things in, around us. I mean, look at our world right now. We're watching, we're not a postmodern U.S. We're a pagan U.S. So stop saying that 
we stop using the Christian name for the U.S. It's not. Never has been. And we can discuss that at another time. But the reality is, we live in a pagan nation. And sometimes, just remembering that this isn't our final home helps us to deal with that. We're sojourners. This isn't where we're ending up. He has secured our future. We can have confidence in that, that he is going to finish what he has started. And last week, Justin um, used this passage. I'll use it this week, Philippians 1.6. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect, listen, will perfect it until the day of Christ. It's him that's doing that perfecting of us. It's him that's causing us to be sanctified. Do we have a responsibility in that? Sure we do. We sure do. But ultimately, it's him who does it. Again, Christianity is the most humbling religion there is. So our first point was preaching the gospel to yourself, and then the next one is be with fellow believers. And I think sometimes we don't put enough emphasis on this. It doesn't mean that you have, I mean, I think you should be here on Sundays worshiping with the body of Christ, but it's also just being with, like yesterday, Three, uh, four of us got together for lunch and it was just so encouraging to our souls to just have some lunch together so we need other believers it's easy for us to think wrongly and talk to ourselves in the wrong way we can fill our mind with lies from our own weakness from our lack of understanding his character and even listen to lies from without the psalmist clearly wants fellowship with other believers as we see in his lament in verse 4, if you look at verse 4, separating from corporate worship is not a remedy against spiritual depression. We need each other to be encouraging one another in our faith. Many neglect regular gathering together, and in turn, they are spiritually weak. We were in Vegas, and don't judge us, um, <laughs> The only reason I go to Vegas is because um, it's mandatory and I had to go to represent my company for a business conference. But we were in Vegas a few weeks back and Cree and I both felt a spiritual oppression. And we didn't even go out that much to see the, the debauchery. But we were so looking forward to coming home and being with you all that next Sunday. <laughs> We were reminded that we need the body of Christ. And any time that we're away from that body, there's something missing in, in our lives. Hebrews 10, 23 through 25 says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider, consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day draw near. <clears throat> so what is our response to the gospel as we preach it to ourselves? 
I want to give you some practical things that hopefully will encourage you and maybe even um, stir your heart towards him more. The first thing we have to do is repent of our sins. We absolutely have to repent of our sins. And we repent first of those sins that are very evident to us and to those around us. We must be killing our sin. Jonathan Edwards' famous line, kill your sin or it's going to kill you. We must be killing our sin. And we must bring forth fruit of true repentance. <clears throat> repentance is never devoid of uh, fruit of that repentance. The second thing I would uh, encourage you do, to do is repent of your secret sins. We must examine our hearts and ask God to reveal those secret sins to us that we may not even realize are sin. How many of you, as you've grown in the Lord, and you know this is a rhetorical question, but how many of you have looked at your life and five years later you're sitting there going, wow, I didn't even realize that was sin what I was doing. It's because God is growing you and he's revealing those secret sins that you still have so that you can repent of them. Psalm 139, 23 through 24 says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. So the first thing we have to do is repent of our sins. The second is revive our love for Christ. We're going through Revelation, and in Revelation 2, there's a letter given to the church of Ephesus, and this is what he said to them. I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men, and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they're not, and you found them to be false, and you have perseverance and have endured for my namesake and have not grown weary. That's encouraging, right? They were calling out false teachers and making it clear to, that they are false and to protect the body of Christ. But listen to what he says. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first, or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of this place unless you repent. Sometimes we can have our doctrine and theology all correct and we can even call out false teachers. But we're doing it maybe not with the right heart. Maybe we've left our first love and we do it because of a spiritual pride. Oh, I'm going to be that guy. I'm going to be the, the spiritual police, which we need those. I'm not saying that's wrong. But don't forget your motive. It's because of your great love for Christ. Go back to your first love. Revive your love for the Lord. The third thing is reprioritize your life. Matthew 6, 33 through 34 says, But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Reprioritize your life. Don't you get up in the morning and you're in the Word. That's encouraging. I do the same. And when I see people doing that, it just joys my heart. And you know what? That spurs me 
to keep doing that when I see you doing that. Or my wife's in, I, I get up way before she does, and I know that she's in there, and when she wakes up, before she even gets out of bed, she's in the Word. You don't think that that's an encouragement to a husband? It's like my wife is a great example for me, just as you are. The fourth one is, remember His grace in our, in our life and extend that to others around us. 1 John 4, 7 through 13 says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Listen here, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this, we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. So you, if you're a true believer, you're going to have a love for the body of Christ. You're going to have a love even for your enemies. So let's finish by saying that we are promised trials in our lives. See, your best life is not now. This is as close as you're going to get to hell if you're a believer. And if you're not a believer, this is as close as you're going to get to heaven unless you repent. But God promises us trials. James 1, 2 through 4 says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result. Look at that perfect result so that you may be what? Perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. God uses our trials to sanctify us, to burn the dross, the sin that still remains on us. He burns that off of us through our trials. Let me encourage you to do this too. It's good to revisit the Old Testament and naturally the New Testament every day to see how God has been faithful to his elect throughout, to his elect throughout time. Most, if not all, believers recorded in Scripture dealt with very trying situations, but God was faithful to bring them through those times. He will do the same with us. We can have confidence in His sovereignty in our lives and His promises to us. Let us not waste our trials, but rather let our trials lead us to greater holiness and greater love for Him and greater love for others. We must keep our eyes on Christ, Pursue him with all we have and be reminded daily of his mercies he has bestowed upon us. If we practice these things daily, it will not lead us to spiritual depression. It will lead us to spiritual blessings in him. Lord, we thank you for this time. We do pray that you would take these truths and apply them to our life. Give us a greater love for you. Let us yearn, as David did, to be filled with living water from you. We thank you for your mercies to us, and thank you for this day. In Christ's name, amen. amen.